Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the morning after the night before, but the country's hangover this time seems to be far less than it might have been and certainly worthwhile given that millions of pounds will have been pumped into the economy thanks to the opening of pubs, the opening of restaurants and other hospitality venues yesterday. Here at Talk Radio, of course, we did our part with a live show from the Horseshoe uh, in the shadow of the Shard, just a few stone's throws from here. And it was lovely to see so many people who turned out to watch it who also listened to Talk Radio. This morning, we'll be checking in with Greg Holland to see what the picture was up and down the country, but it was clearly a very much needed shot in the arm, if you'll pardon the expression, for the economy. If you've got a small business, a shop or a pub, we'd love to hear what it was like for you yesterday to open up finally after some, in some cases, four months, in some cases, six months, in some cases, almost a year since you've actually been able to do any business. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by Peter Hitchens, man on Sunday columnist, with his take on the death of Prince Philip and how he represented much of what used to be seen as British values. And we'll be finding out what the latest news is from the front line uh, of COVID, of course, as the over 40s have crashed the NHS website this morning trying to book vaccination slots. But really, have we got any COVID to talk about anymore? 0344 499 1000. Simon Calder will also join us with all the travel news you're going to need about testing and the cost of it, insurance and what it's going to cover and where you can actually go. Plus, Dr. Rakiba San is here explaining why he has co-authored an open letter to the government about the reaction to the Sewell report on institutional racism earlier this month. A campaigning group that he's a part of has warned that charities and the race industry in general are now deliberately trying to divide our society for their own ends. It's all about money, something I've been warning about before. 0344 499 1000. And finally, coming up at midday, we're also joined by former Donald Trump advisor Sebastian Gorka following Joe Biden's pathetic virtue signalling last week about halting the sale of guns. Only in his case, it's only homemade guns that he's going to be trying to stop being sold. There's 400 million proper guns in America. That's what his gun control is all about. Also, Minneapolis appears to have erupted once more after another black man was shot dead by a police officer in that city. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. 
Talk Radio. Now, as I say, it is the morning after the night before. There will be some of you out there nursing a few hangovers because you managed to go out, uh, you managed to get a table, you managed to have dinner, you managed to have drinks. And it was a great thing to see yesterday. So many people out and about. More people out this morning. A lot more people on the public transport system here in London. A lot more people obviously going back into shops and having to work in shops, which can only be a good thing. Let's talk to Greg Holland now, director at the Campaign for Pubs, to find out just how valuable all of the money spent yesterday actually was. Greg, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Now, I know it's a different picture up and down the country. I mean, yesterday morning we were looking at uh, at Twitter and seeing some poor uh, pub owners saying, look at the snow. You know, we cleared this space for our uh, outdoor uh, sales today, but we're not sure we're going to be able to open. Lots of other people who uh, were told by their local councils that they couldn't open because they didn't uh, pass the test and all of that. But how big of a day was it for the pub industry, Greg? Well, it, it was huge just to have pubs open again, and actually not just huge for pubs and publicans and staff, and it was great to see the, the smile on faces of staff actually yeah. being so glad to be back at work and right. back in a, a, a proper job. But it was also amazing for communities and the community spirit that we saw coming out with people, many people taking a day off. It was an ordinary Monday, um, and yet many pubs up and down the country um, were 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 full and that yes. was great and that, that I think shows what people were missing but also that people have really recognised the value of our pubs not just to the economy but to our way of life our culture um, and our communities and that's that's very positive we, we just really have to keep that going now it's going to be a challenge because yesterday was the first day um, but we hope people will continue to support the pubs. Yes. Um, and we hope the councils will work with publicans um, rather than trying to shut them down to enable them to stay open. Yes. Uh, you know, because the fact is that there's a lot more costs involved of having to open outdoors. So it, it's a challenge. But as you saw yourself yesterday, it's a challenge that our wonderful, hardworking publicans and pub staff really rose to yesterday. Absolutely. And I don't want to give too hard of a time to the councils. I think many of them are actually being very cooperative. And certainly um, the pub owner that we were with yesterday um, down in Southwark said the Southwark Council have been very very helpful, very cooperative. So hopefully that is the norm rather than, you know, the um, uh, the, the exception. And I think that, uh, you know, in individual cases, there, there are obviously going to be occasional jobs worth who are going to try and make people's lives miserable. But I think by and large, you know, the councils want the money as well because there's an awful lot of tax revenue to be had here. Yes, you would certainly hope that's the case. And indeed, you're quite right to highlight that there have been some very helpful councils and some council officers who have seen their job as to help facilitate pubs to open, to help them and advise them on how they can do that. Unfortunately, there have been some councils that have really taken a very different approach. Uh, Cheshire East have got a lot of coverage, quite rightly, because they absurdly suggested and actually wrote to pubs saying that people going to the pub as a group of six, which the government had clearly said was mm. okay, that they had to somehow socially distance from each other within a group of six, which clearly makes that then impossible. Yes. So, and that's not um, actually the, that's not the guidance, is it, or the rule? It's not. I mean, one of the problems is, once again, and this is not the first time with pubs, we have confusing rules. We have rules that were not sufficiently clear, and that does put onus on councils to then interpret them. And as I say, you do then see the attitude of, of certain councils. Um, I would hope it's been a minority, but we have seen other councils where they've insisted on masks outside when the government didn't insist yes. on that. Um, and then there have been councils who've been shutting down outdoor spaces when really you would think that common sense would say that they should comply even mm. when they've got um, 
Uh, no, no covering over the top. So, you know, it, it's a huge challenge. We just need people to understand. We need customers to understand that. We need councils to understand that. This is a huge challenge. You know, pubs um, in England anyway have never had to open outdoors only again. The yeah. first pub I went to yesterday, I had to go through the pub, which was fine. You can't get to the garden without right. doing that. But people were being respectful. They were signing in. They were wearing a mask through the pub, even though they couldn't sit. Yeah. And then they were sitting outside in, I'm glad to say, in beautiful Yorkshire sunshine. Sure. So it's a, it's a challenge, and people need to realise that it will be a tough month. But it is vital, as you've said, to get pubs open again, to get beer sold through our pubs. It's mm. hugely important for our small independent brewers who've been really struggling with the, with their own sales figures inevitably over the last year. So, yes, it, it's a huge step forward. We just need now to look forward to the next stage, to May, and to getting pubs open indoors again. And we would hope that, that would happen without table service because we don't think there's any evidence behind that. But yes. it's important that that does happen and happens when the Prime Minister has said it will. Right. And, I mean, obviously the, the, the toilets have to be accessible, so they have to be indoors, so people do have to go inside the pub to go to them. But there really isn't any firm, it seems to me, ruling on, on the wearing of masks. We heard an awful lot before yesterday um, that some places would be insisting on you wearing a mask, apart from presumably when you're actually physically drinking or eating. Um, but that's kind of difficult to... Um, to, 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 to police, isn't it? Because if you're sitting at a table and you're about to have a drink and you've taken your mask off, who's going to come up to you and say you've got to put your mask on while you're not having a drink? Yes, I mean, I, I think it's clear that the government doesn't intend for people to have to wear masks at all outside. Mm. So, you know, there certainly shouldn't be any, any need for wearing masks at tables unless people, of course, choose to. But, um, yes, people are supposed to wear masks to go inside to use the toilets, which clearly they have to do. Um, but the, I mean, the other issue of some confusion is is indoor payments. The government has said that you should uh, take payments outdoors, right. and you're only allowed to take payments indoors if it isn't possible. Now, what does that mean? You know, it, it, that that again is a challenge for for some pubs. They should probably have set those rules more clearly. Mm. Again, some councils have interpreted them. We had York City Council, who last week was suggesting that you could only pay indoors for. For non-alcoholic drinks, but you had to pay outside for alcoholic drinks, and it gets a complete mess. So we hope that these things will be ironed out. We hope that now that the campaign for pubs and other organisations have really pushed the government to be clearer, mm. and the minister Paul Scully certainly has done what he can to to clarify some of those rules, and that those interpretations were not the intention of the government. We hope that things will settle down, and that pubs can just get on with with serving and the challenge of serving outdoors only, which will be a challenge, but. You know, I'm sure that they will continue to rise to that. And as we saw yesterday, I'm delighted to say that, you know, people up and down the country will work with pubs, will enjoy it and will, you know, if they need to wear a big coat, they'll do it. If they if they need to, um, you know, behave in a certain way, they will do it just to get our pubs back open, mm. trading again and having a future. Because if they don't open again, then some of them would not open at all. So yes. it is a crucial step, but it has to be the first step. And we now need to think about indoors opening mm. and to get getting that back to normal as soon as possible. Yes, well, that was going to be my next question to you, but just before we get to that, um, <clears throat> is it too early to, to, excuse me, to judge exactly how much money was actually taken in yesterday by the uh, the hospitality industry? Yes, I mean, we, we certainly don't have any figures um, of that. You know, clearly there was great trade going on in many pubs up and down the country, mm. but I think at the same time, we have to be slightly careful with the, the simple figures of trade. Um, 
as you probably would have seen yourself, there were many more staff needed to be able to serve outside yeah. for the vast majority of pubs. So actually the costs involved here are very different. So anyone thinking that this is some bonanza for pubs, it absolutely isn't. It's a way of getting open again in a very unusual way. Mm. Um, simply to be able to trade, to start to get some trade, to, to get people back to, to work and to get people back to using the pub and having the confidence to go to the pub. Yeah, absolutely so with the right. Involved, you know, we do know, I mean, we, we know of members and other pubs who have said that, yes, they intend to open, but they will not make a profit. In, mm. in some cases, they know that they will make a loss through this month, but they wanted to do it because they wanted to get back people back in and back using yeah. the pub and having that, you know, role that the pub plays in the community. So it's going to be a tough month, whatever. You know, we need people to come out and support it, but it will be tough because of the extra costs mm. and the restrictions on trade, which clearly remain. Yes, well, I heard Tim uh, Tim Martin talking from Weatherspoons this morning on Julie Holly Brewer's show saying that they've been losing around about four million a week uh, in their chain. Uh, and with the opening now outside, they're hopeful that they can only lose three million a week instead of four. So it's by no means a bonanza. Absolutely. I mean, and that really... You know, with the chain the size of Weatherspoons, that really says a lot. So when you think about individual pubs that have had to take on staff through the week to be able to open them. Mm. Now, you know, yesterday was the first day. It was a Monday and there were many people out, but it's now a weekday. It's Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah. Um, and yet they still have to have staff on who can then serve people outside. Yeah. They have to take the risk to open. They have to take the risk to have that extra staff on. So it is a gamble, and it's a gamble that many pubs are taking, knowing that they won't make money from doing this, but they want to open. They want to be serving the communities. They want to be supporting the local brewers, who otherwise would still see another month without trade. So people are working together. It's great that pubs are able to, if not open their doors, at least open their gardens. But we do now need to be thinking about next month and indoor opening again. And then finally, hopefully, things getting back to normal and people having the confidence to come out and support their, their pubs uh, without them ever having the risk of closing again, which is absolutely key. Absolutely right. And as far as the uh, the next stage goes and the serving uh, of alcohol indoors, um, are you worried that they're going to try and bring a kind of vaccination passport scenario in for that and where they're going to say, look, you can operate inside uh, and you can have no social distancing, but you have to have an app that tells everyone in there that they've all either had a vaccine or they've got a, a, a negative test? Yes, we are worried about that, and we very clearly oppose any imposition of, of, of vaccine passports for pubs. We said that as soon as the Prime Minister, as, as is his way, just um, made that, that strange comment to the Select Committee and suddenly that news w was out there. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I think the thing is, pubs have shown, they showed last year when they opened again after the first lockdown, how seriously they took their role as licensed premises how seriously they took the, the, the responsibility of encouraging people to behave differently, to sit apart at different tables, to have one-way systems. Um, and, you know, the pubs showed again yesterday that that's exactly what they will do. They will abide with the rules. They will encourage people to be slightly different in their behaviour because we all accept that this pandemic has, has happened. Mm. But then to start imposing... Um, checks and to, to put the onus on pubs to then have to check whether someone has had um, a medical treatment a vaccination is another thing altogether it it has um, really concerning issues when it comes to civil liberties and mm. where that data goes how long data is kept for 
Um, but it also is a, yet another practical issue for pubs. It's another potential cost if, if pubs have to have staff on the door to do that. But it also continues to give the sense that we, um, you know, that, you know, we're, we're not a, a single society and that we're not, um, you know, we're having prejudice on the basis of whether people have had a vaccination or not. And I think what's very strange about the whole idea is it can't come in until every single person has been vaccinated. Right. And as you've been reporting, over 40s today um, are now are all clamoring to get their, their vaccinations and they will be doing so over the next few weeks. But mm. it will take a while till we get to the under 30s. And you can't have any sort of system for checking people's vaccinations until every single person um, who's eligible has been offered one. Mm. And that can't be till the autumn. So why on earth are we talking about some sort of vaccination passport system in autumn by the time we have virtually the whole population vaccinated mm. surely by then we can move to having um a, a, you know you know the, the kind of normality that the prime minister himself has said that we we will get back if we pursue the vaccination right program. well we've been talking about this over the past week or so anyway and and the problem for a lot of pubs as well is that most of their staff are quite young many of them in their 20s some of them in late teens perhaps because they're doing a job uh, of work that that suits their lifestyle it suits what they're doing they might be students or whatever they're going to be the last people to be vaccinated so how can you ask for people to come in as customers having had the vaccination if none of the staff have it makes no sense at all Yes, that's the thing. It, it really doesn't make any sense. Um, and, you know, I just, you, you have to question why the government is suggesting it. And, you know, we're absolutely clear that the government should be proposing things that, that it needs to, to, to deal with the, the pandemic, the social distancing, mm. um, and some of the, the sensible rules. There have been some sensible rules as well as some, some silly ones. But this seems to be something quite different, and you really have to question the motivation of something that is coming in, um, you know, not earlier than 18 months mm. after the start of this this pandemic, and then potentially lasting for years. So it, are we going to move forward with um, a society that regards people who haven't been vaccinated as a different class of society? Mm. It's never happened with any other disease, with any other vaccination before. Um, and I don't believe it should happen with this one. I think we need to do what we can practically to deal with this disease, yeah. but not to start imposing things, restrictions and prejudices on the basis of whether people have had treatment or not. No, I think that's absolutely right. And what about the brewers themselves? Because obviously during the pandemic and during the lockdown, people have been able to order, you know, wine and, and various other alcoholic drinks, but sort of cask beer is not something that you tend to order round to the house. So are the, have the brewers suffered badly through this? They, they have particularly the smaller brewers. And as you said, cask beer, wasn't it wonderful to be having a pint? Oh, my God. I'll tell you what, when I tasted the first one yesterday, I, I cannot tell you how great it tasted. Absolutely. Well, I took a little video of myself having my first <laughs> uh, my first sip of a pint in, uh, in, in Otley. Um, and, and yes, that's been great. And the fact that, you know, we also have small brewer members and they've been very, very busy preparing to supply pubs and it's been wonderful to have that supply chain mm. working again, to have our, our local brewers up and down the country able to get their beer into pubs for people to enjoy in the best environment to do so. And for those pubs that are particularly reliant on pub trade and particularly reliant on cask and draft beer, it's been devastating. There have been, I'm afraid, one or two breweries that haven't made it out uh, and others that have really, really struggled. So it's crucial for them uh, you know, we need to remember that we're talking about England here. We haven't yet seen the, the same thing happening uh, in Scotland. 
and in Wales. Mm. So, you know, we, we, we think and our thoughts are with the, the pubs and the breweries in those areas as well, in, in Wales and in Scotland, right. so that we hope that they can start trading again, they can start brewing and that they can start enjoying their pubs too. But it was great to, to be enjoying an excellent pint of local beer in a local pub. Now what we need is certainty going forward so that the supply chain doesn't get broken again, doesn't get interrupted. We don't see the vast amounts of beer that were wasted when we've had last-minute lockdowns before. Yes. We need to carry on. We need to get back to, to some sort of normality over the next few months. I think that's absolutely right, Greg. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Greg Mulholland, Director at the Campaign for Pubs, giving us the lowdown there on the picture nationally. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let's talk uh, to Dr. Renee Houdenkamp because she's an NHS GP, medical writer as well. And uh, Renee, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining Hi. us. Hi, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Um, we're reading a sort of uh, a collection of stories this morning, uh, most, most of which tend, seem to be sort of good news, really. Um, uh, the, the, the NHS website has crashed due to the number of people over 40 who are now trying to get themselves vaccinated, which is which is no bad thing, I suppose. They'll fix that. Um, there's talk of a new variant in some parts of South London, um, which may or may not be anything to worry about. But I saw, funnily enough, yesterday, um, a, a sort of a, a mobile testing site suddenly popping up outside of London Bridge Station. Um, but the risk and, and the rate of uh, infection seems to really have gone down massively, doesn't it? It's gone down massively. There doesn't seem to be much virus in the community at all anywhere. Obviously, there are pockets across the country. Mm. It does worry me, this asymptomatic testing, because it does go against the definition of a case. And the medical definition of a case is that somebody has a disease and then you confirm it with a test. Right not let's just do tests and find positive cases. Mm. So, I mean, I think if you test enough, you'll find some COVID always yeah. because it's going to be here and we're going to have to live with it. Well, exactly right. And, and I mean, I'm still very uneasy about the whole school testing system, which is going to be carried on presumably now after the Easter holidays. My my two boys, um, one of them doesn't doesn't do the test, but one of them also uh, basically was sent home and told you should do two tests a week, even though you're not even coming back to school for another month. I mean, it seems mad. I think it is crazy. And I think what worries me about the school tests is firstly doing them. I don't think we should be doing them. But secondly, if we are going to do them, if there's a positive test, it should be followed up with a PCR in the lab because we know that these lateral flows give positive tests that are not real. Mm. And, you know, kids don't get ill with COVID. My daughter, who's two and a half and she is in the other room, if she joins us, I apologise. That's all right. Um, I thought I could had, hear another voice. I wasn't sure it was I, in my I've head. I've bribed her. I've actually bribed her with TV. <laughs> she never watches TV, so well, she'll probably say I hope say it's that. not the BBC. She'll never be the same again. <laughs> but she was ill with COVID for an hour. She literally had a fever for an hour when the rest of us were quite poorly. You know, what are we doing to these poor kids? They're wearing masks and they're being tested twice a week. Mm. They will be convinced that they are carrying, you know, the plague yeah. around. It's not fair. Also, is it not sort of falsely creating a world in which you expect everybody around you to be exactly the same as you, i.e. completely and utterly healthy, which is nonsense anyway, because as I've said to people before about the whole idea of COVID passports, the person standing next to you in a bar could be any number of different things, including a violent criminal. You know, whether or not they have COVID is not really the point, is it? No, and they could have the flu, they could have hepatitis B, yeah. they could have hepatitis C, they could have all sorts of things. We no don't know that and we've never worried about it before. Right. We've got on with our lives. We've taken the vaccines that we want to take and I'm absolutely for that. If people want to be vaccinated, they absolutely should be. Mm. Um, and, but I've never been one to mandate vaccines. I think it should be choice and I think it should be down to health professionals like me 
to convince people that it's the right thing to do. Yes. And what do you make of the argument that uh, was made last week that we probably have reached some kind of herd immunity uh, by this week? Um, the government doesn't seem too keen to push that out there. No, they don't, do they? That's a surprise, isn't yeah, it? And, and, um, isn't it? I think we absolutely have probably reached herd immunity from both a combination of natural immunity and vaccine. Mm. Um, it's really interesting what's going on. And we actually have people that have had COVID that have had one vaccine, me included, who then have antibodies that are so high, they're not actually measurable on the scale. Right. You know, so it's out there and we almost certainly do have herd immunity, which is why levels are now so low. Yes. And I mean, you know, we have seen this before. And, you know, there's always a slight wariness in, in the back of my mind, because back in September of last year, I was having conversations with, with colleagues of yours. And we were pretty sure that even though there might be rises in, in cases of, uh, of the infection in places like universities and, and, and maybe even schools, because they'd gone back for the first time, that by and large, certainly in the southeast of England, it had more or less disappeared, but then it did come back. And so these people who keep saying it might come back, you're kind of thinking, well, maybe it might. Well, there's a few things to say on this, actually, and I think it's really interesting. I think the, the first is, and this isn't spoken about or questioned by the press at all, mm. I think we've had our third wave. I think it was the Kent variant, and yeah. I think that's what's moving across Europe now. And I think it was really telling when a couple of weeks ago, Mr Whitty stood up in his press release and described his graph as wave one, Wave 2A and yeah. Wave 2B. Oh, really? What the <laughs> hell is Wave 2A and 2B? He's amazing. That's me. Well, that's Wave 2 and 3. because right. we've had, And they know we've had it. The difference between now and September is we have a massively vaccinated population. 32 million people have mm. had at least one dose. So we've protected the people that are going to die from this horrible disease. That's what we needed to do. We can't stop everyone dying of it, just as we can't stop everyone dying from flu or other respiratory yes. illnesses that they do every year. No, I mean, I was given some information yesterday um, uh, by a listener, but it was actually um, hospital medical information that, that, was, that was issued as a statistic from Cornwall, uh, that, where they had a very, very low number uh, of people who've actually died of COVID, as low as about 11. Um, however, what they'd also had was a hell of an increase in the numbers of people admitted to hospital for attempted suicide. I saw that, 500 people. Yeah. It was awful. I know. And I think... I mean, as I've said from the start, Mike, what worries me about this, and it has since last April, is that we are casting aside every single patient who's got everything else going on that they normally would have going on for COVID. And yeah. it's the only thing we're seeing in our blinkers. And people are really suffering. They're suffering from the isolation. They're suffering from mistreatments. They're suffering from un undiagnosed cancers or missed heart attacks that may have actually, they would have survived if they'd have gone to hospital, but they stayed at home and died. Yes. And you can see the joy in people's faces yesterday out and about. Uh, sitting outside I mean admittedly it wasn't particularly warm but it was sunny and it was pleasant but the thing that you could see in people's faces was the joy of just mingling again with people talking to people and and, and even talking to people they didn't know as they walked past saying hello to different people that you know something that people haven't done for four months we are social human beings, yeah. we really are, and we need this, and it's really important. And I've seen this escalation in mental health in my day-to-day -day GP work, and it's really sad. And all I can say to those people that are too scared to mingle and too scared to go out to the pub, that's fine as well. You know, you must do what works for you, but you can't, you can't continue to keep the lid on this pressure cooker of human beings who want to socialise because you're scared. Mm. You are welcome to stay at home. Exactly right. And if people are well worried and if people are vulnerable and if you have relatives who are worried and vulnerable, you're hardly going to be going in and seeing them every day and hugging them and doing all the things that you're supposed to not do if you want to keep them safe. But as far as the rest of us are concerned, you know, we should be out and about. 
Absolutely. And I think the other message that's really not getting across, if you've got people that are vulnerable, encourage them to have the vaccine. And then they're not vulnerable anymore because they've had the vaccine and they've done everything within their power to protect themselves should they be worried about that kind of contact. Yes, exactly right. So as far as you're concerned, Doctor, I mean, in in the next sort of month, we should have vaccinated probably most of the people over 40, uh, which means we're really left with the numbers of people who died under 40 being literally, I think, less than 100. Um, so you're talking about really having very little risk whatsoever of anybody having to go to hospital uh, and certainly not dying from COVID. Absolutely. And look, nobody takes any one of those deaths, be it 100 or 1 or 1,000. Anyone that dies, whatever age, is really sad and tragic and they have families. And we must always be aware of that. But at the same time, these people die of other things too. I did my risk calculator on the Oxford tool. Mm. Um, I have asthma, I'm over 50. And my risk of dying of COVID was 1 in 35,000. My risk of dying in a car accident this year is 1 in 22,000. I still drive my car. Right, exactly. And I mean, you know, probability is one thing. But the way that they've now twisted this kind of ridiculous um, fear at the, uh, at the chief medical officer's uh, office uh, and the way that they continually talk about now long COVID as if that's now a problem because they've moved away from everything else. You know, I find it quite reprehensible in many ways. I think there really has been such propaganda that has terrified people. It's almost been too successful because I see 27-year-olds now, healthy, slim, 27-year-olds. And I say slim for a reason, because the biggest risk factor for COVID Mm. poor outcomes is obesity. And that's a BMI over 25. It's not over 30, it's over 25. Mm. But I see these healthy young people terrified that they will die if they get COVID. And the chances are minuscule, absolutely minuscule. So then they say, well, what if I get long COVID? Well, you know what? Post-viral syndrome, which is what COVID is, we've just given it a new name, is not new. It's been written about extensively for a very, very small number of people. Tragically, they get ME, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, but most people get better. Sometimes it can take a good few months, but it's not new. And we have to start changing the language around this. I mean, I've also got more chance, some of these 20-something-year-olds, of getting um, uh, a drug overdose when they go to Glastonbury. You know, they don't, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to get COVID, but they don't mind dropping a couple of E's, you know, while they're watching Coldplay. You know, I find it extraordinary. It is extraordinary, I agree. People's um, risk on this has been really catapulted through the ceiling. And I see most patients who think they're going to die. And when I explain to them that even if you're 85, your chance of surviving is greater than your chance of dying, mm. they look at me confused. Yes. And they think, well, surely that can't be true. You must be some enemy of the state. I know, it's incredible. Dr. Renee Herdenkamp, thank you very much indeed. Great to talk to you. See you soon. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the morning after the night before. The country uh, is suffering somewhat from a kind of collective hangover, uh, but it's not an unhappy one. It's a rather happy one because a lot of money was pumped into the economy yesterday. It might not be perfect. It might not be great. It might not be back to normal completely, but it certainly did feel quite normal yesterday uh, sitting outside uh, on the sun terrace of a beautiful pub in the shadow of the shard called the Horseshoe uh, in which we were able to entertain uh, you all uh, for six hours of the day yesterday. Uh, 
uh, and then also watch as some of you did the same thing in the very same pub. An awful lot of you out and about going shopping, going to the hairdressers, going to the gym, doing the things you haven't been able to do uh, for over 115 days. Now, we're going to talk to Peter Hitchens in this hour. Uh, he might well say that it's not good enough, it's not there yet, um, and he's right. However, we are certainly making a step in the right direction. The big question is, are we going to continue to make those steps? Are we going to continue to reclaim uh, what was once ours by right? And are we going to continue uh, to be able to expect this government not to throw down uh, any gauntlets in the way of our personal freedoms and our liberties? We shall see. Peter's also going to talk about his take uh, on Prince Philip, which I found interesting at the weekend, talking about him very much as a man who embodied an awful lot of what used to be known as Britishness, which sadly appears to have deserted these shores for the moment. We'll see whether we can get that back. 0344-499-1000 is the number. Coming up later on, uh, we're also going to be talking to Dr. Rakiba San uh, about the race report. He's actually written an open letter to the government saying that he's had very concern, along with many other academics, that the race industry, if you like, is actually using that report to try and further uh, sort of split society, to further divide us rather than to unite us. And I think he's right to point that out and it's the wrong way to go. 0344-499-1000. You listen to me, Mike Graham, right here uh, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Peter Hitchens. And apologies, Peter, for coming to you a day late. But um, uh, matters meant that we couldn't quite see you yesterday in uh, in, in your full glory. So we, we thought we'd do it today instead. Uh, no, I quite understand. I felt a bit lost yesterday. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I coped in the end. Well, good. I mean, a lot of people did wonder where you were and, and said, well, why didn't you just bring him down to the pub? But, you know, anyway, so be it next time. Well, that was, would have been an idea, but I did if I have a hangover yesterday. Yes. Well, um, that, well, that's good. Which, well, yes, it was, it was a, uh, owing to doing a thing I very rarely do, which is drinking white wine the night before. <laughs> I really shouldn't ever do that. No. No, it's a dangerous it's terrible uh, stuff, and I, I should just abjure it completely. It wasn't a matter of of, um, of quantity, but of quality. No, quite. And were you able to get out and about yesterday and do anything that you hadn't done for a while? No, not really. I, I had work to do, and I don't find it particularly appealing sitting in, in the freezing wind outside, having my details checked right. before I'm allowed to have a drink. And the idea of having to be dependent on an app to buy a pint of beer is, is is worrying to me since an app to me is about as inaccessible as a, as a launch code for a nuclear missile. I wouldn't know how to do it. <laughs> so it didn't, I, I, I'm afraid, no, it, it, the whole thing was, was, was the wrong way around. Here we are thanking Big Brother for being nice enough to let us sit outside pubs we used to be allowed to go into yes. without anybody's permission and, and people are supposed to rejoice over it no thanks yeah no i take that point i mean i simply took it as a, a step in the right direction which i hope it is and which i hope a lot of pubs and, and restaurants will will take sort of with a pinch of salt because i think in the end it's up to them if they take well, the view, I, if they take the view that they don't necessarily require what it is that the government says they will require um then they will probably do that don't they don't they face quite severe penalties though if they don't they do, uh, they do, but it depends on how easy that will be to to, to figure out and to, and to police and to patrol. Well, it's extraordinary what they do police, isn't it? They're very good at policing going to church, for instance. Yes, or something. they're very good at like, that. I usually yeah. see them becoming very good at policing pubs and restaurants mm. which don't uh, do the identity checks that that are required, and that's and there's the problem. Mm. So, is it a step in the right direction, or is it a step in in the wrong direction, made more acceptable by the fact that you get a drink while taking it? Yes. Well, I guess time will tell, but uh, we, we we shall keep our eyes on them at, at the very least. Let's talk a little bit about your your I thought very interesting take on Prince Philip, um, because uh, funnily enough, I on Friday uh, had a thought about uh, about my own father who died 
a little bit later than than yours. He was sort of early part of of this century, um, but he was of a similar vintage as well. And I, they were very similar types of men. You know, my father was very. He he'd served in the RAF, and he was very kind of um, very humorous, very uh, critical of authority, very sort of. Um, uh, always very, very quick with a quip and, and, and a sort of, you know, very, very quick witted and able to, to put people at ease by just being funny. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have we lost, Peter? Uh, so I lost you there. Oh, sorry. Am, am, okay. I back, am I back now? Yeah, you're back. Yes, sorry. Did you hear any of that? I heard almost all of it except okay. the last few seconds. Okay, yeah, so, so you know, I was pleased that, that you had the same kind of reaction where, where he sort of reminded uh, you of your own father. Well, yeah, so it is a, it is a generational thing. It's also, too, it's very much a naval thing. I, if, if you grew up in close uh, contact with any of the armed services, it, 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 it alters your view of life. And I was very fortunate that my father was in the Navy. Indeed, my mother would be in the Navy during the Second World War as well. So yeah. there was a, a, a very strong connection I can still remember the, the difference in, in, in language and attitude and everything. Mm. Uh, the other coincidence in, in my case, which is, of course, meaningless, but it was always fascinating to me, was that my, my parents uh, had started their family in Malta at roughly the same time that the, the then Duke of Edinburgh and Princess Elizabeth was starting a family in the only really private circumstances they ever had in their lives, also in Malta, mm. uh, in the late 40s and early 1950s, probably actually would have encountered each other at, at various naval events and social gatherings and w whatever else you might have, because it, it, the Navy was always quite a small family. Yes. Uh, and I, it's always seemed to me to, 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 to give me a f sort of ludicrous but definite identification with the royal family, which is part of the power of, of royalty, in the form of a family, that everybody in the country feels some sort of connection with it. And mm. uh, I, when asked, actually some time ago, to write about this, it's what I came up with. I was a bit embarrassed about it because I thought people might think I was making some stupid claim. But in fact, I've had uh, some rather um, rather touching 
uh, communications from people saying that they enjoyed it. So I'm glad I wrote it. Now. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And also, you 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 point out as as I think many people would would have would have seen that he's a very despite not being born uh, in Britain, despite not actually being British at the beginning of his uh, career with the royal family, if you want to call it that, um, he absolutely embodies what being British used to be. Well, co- uh, completely the two points there. One is that I think anybody can become British. Mm. Uh, here is somebody who was Danish by ancestry, uh, who had been originally brought up in the Greek royal family, for heaven's sake. Uh, and yet by the end of his life, and it was, as I discovered to my surprise, uh, fluent in English, German and French mm. and, uh, and, and, and and good at a couple of other languages as well. To hear him talk, you would have thought that he'd been brought, brought up uh, in, I suppose, the British upper middle classes. Yeah. And I think it was probably the Navy that gave him that. And uh, uh, Britishness as we knew it, and as I understood it when I was growing up, was partly a product of the war when all the all the peoples of the United Kingdom and indeed everybody in, in, in what was then the Empire worked together in a way they, they haven't done before or since against a terrible enemy. And it forged a particular kind of nationality, which was because it was forged in wartime, was terse, uh, uninterested in self-pity, uh, required an acceptance of duty. Mm. And I think these things are admirable. And there was a long period in our national life when it was not possible to say that they were admirable. And they were largely derided by comedians and the culture and everybody else. But I think there's an understanding as, as, as the people who embodied those virtues disappear from among us, that actually they had a point. And that there's a society which has nobody in it who believes in, in duty and nobody in it who's prepared to be self-effacing mm. in matters of claiming credit. Nobody in it who has that, that wonderful, dry, dismissive sense of humor which, which reduces things to proportion. Uh, that such people are incredibly valuable in a culture, and we we are going to miss having a lot of them about. No, indeed, and he, was, he was the biggest representative of them among us. Yes, I think so. Um, and and some of the stories about some of his quips. There was a couple of pieces of video which were very funny as well. I mean, we're now reduced, even in the royal family, to um, a statement or a story today being published about uh, why Meghan Markle didn't come uh, alongside her husband uh, Harry because she didn't want to be the centre of attention, uh, which is <laughs> perhaps the funniest story I've read all week. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, there was, a, there was, a, there was a, an expression that my mother and my father both used to use quite a lot when people made claims about how concerned they were about others. Oh, that's damn nice of you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, what, what, a, what a completely selfless gesture. Um, to, <laughs> to, to think that she would have been the centre of attention was funny enough. But no, then to it's, say, it's, 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 it's lovely and- it's like I, I do from time to time use it myself to this day. It's a lovely dismissive, uh, reducing things to the size that they really right. are expression. Yeah. That's damn nice of you. Yes, I, I, exactly. I, I, but have I we not, but have we become, do you think, Peter, years. a sort of divided society? Because I was I was sort of horrified at the same time as slightly surprised and amazed that so many people complained to the BBC um, about all the coverage of, of the fact that Prince Philip had died. I mean, I don't think the BBC got it right. I don't think they should have probably put uh, one channel to sleep for the night and allowed the other two channels to, to pump out exactly the same programming. But nevertheless, if you don't want to watch it, that's fine. Why would you want to complain about it? No, I can see what that's about. I mean, the BBC were terribly embarrassed because they made fools of themselves over the Queen Mother. Mm. They hadn't realised how important she was in national life and they under they underdid the mm. commemoration. So they overreacted by... Uh, I think quite possibly overdoing this. I, I, if you look at what happened, for instance, when Winston Churchill died, oh, there were a number of measures, say footballers wore black armbands, but there's, you know, the, 
theatres stayed open and yeah. there wasn't you know, there, was, there was a level of national mourning but but the the television and radio schedules were slightly interrupted and not wholly taken over and i think there are an awful lot of people who really are have been brought up to not to believe in or feel any particularly strong affinity to the monarchy I think my, my own view is it's a great shame yes the monarchy has lost its hold over the public mind uh, people are more interested in, in, in show business and sporting figures who, who would once have strongly identified with the royal family. It's a loss, but it's true. So I wasn't particularly surprised that those complaints came in. I, I certainly wouldn't have joined in them myself, but I think it, 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 it is partly a result of the BBC uh, feeling that they they made a mistake over the Queen Mother and trying to overcompensate for it. So, but I, what a thing to complain about, honestly. And when there are so many other things in the BBC <laughs> that ought to be complained about by the actual actions of in, inaccuracy or, or 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 straightforward untruth, but it, hardly anybody complains about. Yeah, they get they get worked up because yeah. of, an, an episode of their favourite soap opera is postponed for a day. And do you think that the, the the sort of the people who are less inclined to be in favour of the royal family have been encouraged to be so by some of our politicians, not least uh, Saint Tony Blair of this parish? Well, I think it was obvious that Blair was in com- competition with the royal family mm. when he was in, in in office, and there was the famous incident of, of trying to muscle in on on, on royal activities. Yeah. He was politicians, not just Labour politicians love to pose with the armed forces as if they were commanders in chief mm. as they are in the United States and they're not here, uh, which is also an, an, an interference. But in general, I think the a, the, a large part of the of the Labour Party is actually Republican, uh, but just knows perfectly well that this is not a good time to talk about it and is, is, is keeping its powder dry for an, another time when mm. they're going to come over, uh, out openly. But it's hard to really claim to be a, a monarchist when you're not. It's never very convincing, is it? I think the whole culture, our education system, uh, the, the 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 very powerful effect of the sort of comedians who get broadcast, the the way the way in which so many people talk about and have talked dismissively about monarchy for so long has reduced its uh, its influence and standing among us. And people who do that, as I've often said, should should wonder to themselves sometimes what they think they're going to get instead. Mm. Uh, my absolute nightmare is President Piers Morgan, but I, I think <laughs> that there are there are several stages between here and there which are nearly as bad. Well, this is the thing. I mean, also if you cast your eyes across the uh, uh, across the pond to, to Europe, you know there are still one or two kind of royal families that remain, but they don't really seem to have any purpose, and they've become more or less pretty irrelevant. Whereas at least well, here, much. whereas at least here we still see the monarchy, or at least many of us do, as a kind of semblance of stability. Well, yes, I mean, there are the, the continental royal families are much diminished in most cases by by the fact that their countries were, were occupied by the by the Germans mm. during the Second World War, and everything in those countries is permanently diminished by that. Um, it, interesting fact, by the way, we are the only um, monarchy left in Europe, and I think in the world, which still has the coronation service as monarch. The others are basically just inaugurated like presidents. Yeah. There isn't any ceremony at all. Right. Uh, we do have a unique possession. Uh, which I think is very valuable, and which uh, which does contribute not just to stability, but to keeping politicians out of areas which they would like to muscle in on. Mm. The, all the, the the glorious um, and uh, enjoyable and ceremonial stuff and poncing about in uniforms and taking the salute. Mm. They can't do that here because the monarchy gets in the way, and it's it's 
principal function, in my view, is to, is, is to get in the way yes. and to stop politicians doing that kind of thing. I don't want to see Prime Minister taking the salute from the armed forces or, or, or wearing a military uniform. Mm. Thank mm. you very much. Uh, but it, these things are some sort of ceremony and grandeur is necessary to any state. So who's going to actually benefit from yes. it? Not yeah. politicians, as to be No, it does. And it does fulfill quite uh, a good role in that sense. The other piece I thought was interesting was the one you wrote about Ireland, because we've heard an awful lot of rubbish talked, I think, in the last week about the so-called riots in Northern Ireland uh, as to whether they're the cause of, of anything that's going to happen in the future. Whether you know, There's been a lot, an awful lot of people commenting on Northern Ireland who don't really know much about Northern Ireland. Well, hardly anybody knows much about it. I don't claim to know much about it. I haven't been there enough or, uh, or, or read enough about it. But I've, I've been struck from the very beginning of the so-called current peace process and the 1998 agreement uh, by how little it's been understood. Mm. I, I once had a conversation with the Labour Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, whose blushes I will spare by not naming him, and asked him a detailed question about the agreement. He didn't even know that contained provision for a referendum to unite Northern Ireland with the Republic, yeah. which is in fact its key provision. It's the, the whole, it's a delayed, it's a delayed landmine. Yes. It, it has that in it and eventually it will come about. Yeah, because is it, is it not about, rather curiously set up to be done when they believe they can win it? Yes, and indeed what's, what's more is it can be held every seven years until right. it comes up with the right result. Right. Uh, if, it, if, it, if it comes up with the wrong result, that is to say the Northern Ireland remaining in the United Kingdom, it can be held again. Mm. If it comes up with, with the result that Northern Ireland should be transferred to the sovereignty of Dublin, it's over, yeah. uh, which tells you obviously what its actual purpose is. Right. But I think uh, the, uh, some of the stupider people on what is what is misleadingly called the loyalist side, particularly the, the gangsters mm. who were released from prison at the same time as their IRA opposite number gangsters, uh, bought the agreement because it gave them privileges, it got their people out of jail, and it allowed them to do what they've continued to do since 1998, which is to operate their protection rackets and smuggling rackets and all the other horrible things that they do. Mm. Uh, they thought they'd got away with it. But the, the thing is that the, the unionist people of Northern Ireland are beginning to grasp uh, that there is that they are actually on the road to being ruled by Dublin, mm. not just ruled by Dublin. Uh, there's a curious thing about the agreement which most people aren't aware of, uh, which is the that it allows political parties in Northern Ireland to raise money abroad, which no other party in the United Kingdom or I think in the Irish Republic is allowed to do. So Sinn Féin uh, has an enormous ability to raise money in the United States, which it is very good at. Mm. And one of the reasons, uh, there are others, of course, for the growth in Sinn Féin's power and influence north and south of the border is this amazing ability to raise funds. And there is a great danger that Sinn Féin will become a, a major governing party in Ireland. And you could see not just the reunification of Ireland, but a reunification of Ireland under a Sinn Féin government. And that must be alarming. I thought to practically anybody in Ireland of any sense, but particularly uh, to unionists in Northern Ireland who might be ready to be ruled uh, from Dublin by a, by a, 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 a civilised government of Democrats, but would be very hesitant to be ruled from Dublin uh, by by a government which contains Sinn Féin. Yes, and I that, think that, that is a future that, which now looms, and, and it must be worrying for people in, in yeah. Northern Ireland, and indeed worrying for people in the Republic as well, who I think didn't quite realise the monster they were creating uh, when they welcomed Sinn Féin uh, in, in, into normal politics again under American pressure.
And the, the proof about that agreement, really, or the truth about it, I should say, uh, is that it was basically giving away the farm, was it not, um, to to the um, to the Sinn Fein supporting side of Northern Ireland? And basically, it now would appear that the PSNI um, is so guilty of what happened when it was the RUC that they appear they appear to be in some way um, more favourable, shall we say, to um, to former uh, IRA um, members. Well, it's not just that. The, the really key thing about it was this. There have been traditions in, in Northern Ireland on both sides, uh, unionists and nationalists, which were peaceful and democratic and lawful. And they were pushed to one side by that agreement, which rewarded uh, on both sides those which had not been peaceful or democratic or lawful. Mm. In fact, the, the, the mass release uh, from prison of, of, of people who want to... I, I think the word gangster is, is, is appropriate. Yeah. Who operated as gangsters under, under 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 political cover, and the the way in which the the parties, which had again let me put this gently, had not renounced violence, uh, began to grow mm. uh, in strength and power, and the parties which had which had re- renounced or, or denounced or or refused to take part in violence, which were constitutional, were pushed to one side. So the two great peaceful parties, the the Ulster Unionists and the the, the SDLP. Uh, were both pushed to one side by parties whose, how shall I put it, were, were less concerned with, uh, with, with legality than mm. they were. And that was the great damage done by the agreement. It rewarded, uh, it, it, it rewarded the politics of intimidation. Yes. And, and unfortunately, that is really what led to what was going on uh, in, um, in, in the Protestant areas of, of, of West Belfast uh, over the past week. It seems to have quietened down a bit this week. Um, because, yes, you could say that Brexit is partially a, a catalyst, but it's not really the main one, is it? I think it's very important that, that, that it has created. I, as you probably know, my position on the European issue was that we should have, we should have stayed in, this, in the single market and gone for what's called the Norway option. Yeah. Had we done so, this wouldn't have arisen. Uh, but once you, once we left the single market, there was going to have to be some sort of frontier uh, in Ireland between a, a, the North, which was not in it, and the, and the Republic, which was. And that was resolved by, I have to say, a pretty, uh, pretty crummy uh, non-fudge by the, the Johnson government, mm-hmm. which basically said, having said there would be no border in the RSC, then created a border in the RC, and there isn't any question at all uh, that in, the, this is a very important step uh, away from the uh, away from unionism and towards the the incorporation de facto mm. of Northern Ireland in an EU-dominated Republic of Ireland. I think any even completely peaceful, um, serious, constitutional, democratic unionists have got reason to see this as a as a danger sign. And if, if and when that spreads, when the, that sort of fear spreads into the areas where it's been happening, then you see a difficulty. How is this going to be resolved? I don't know. I've, I've said for years and years that this may all end up with a Sinn Féin president uh, or, or, or Taoiseach in Dublin sending Irish troops to Belfast to put down loyalist riots in the Shankill Road. Uh, and basically the mirror image of what happened in 1969. Mm. Uh, you'll get a united Ireland, but it won't be united in spirit. And this is the, this has always been the danger. The problem with Northern Ireland is you've got two communities and neither of them should, should, should have the whip hand over the other. No, but this and is the thing. Dominate. The d- direct rule, continued direct rule would, which is, again, my solution now impossible, but perfectly possible if we hadn't given in to the, to the Jerry Adams 
strain of thought. Right. A direct rule from, from London with, uh, with, with neither side, with, with the abolition of the Stormont government and neither side being able to, to, to lord it over the other uh, would have been far, far better uh, than a position where one community can say, well, we don't really recognize this government. Mm. It's not our police force. It's not our government. It's not our state. Uh, and a, a permanent alienation. I just think it was a terrible mistake, and I, I, I still wish we hadn't made it. All I can do now is say I wish we hadn't made it and, and, and comment upon it, but I don't see what can be done mm. about it. The, the, particularly the creation of this customs border in the middle of the RSC is, is, has created a new tension. I don't see any easy way of resolving that. Yes, no, it's a fascinating uh, quandary. We should be keeping our eyes on it. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we spoke, of course, to Catherine uh, Kate Hoey uh, a little while back, the Baroness, uh, over in Northern Ireland. She said that what she thought was possibly a solution uh, was for the European Union to recognise Northern Ireland on its own uh, as within um, a customs area, but not the rest of the UK. And that surely might be the answer, but we shall see. We'll be talking about it, I'm sure, many, many more hours. Uh, Peter, thank you very much indeed. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.